Hello my friends, welcome back to Garda Goes Geek. On today's episode, I just wanted to do uh, a sort of a roundup of some other projects that I've been wanting to talk about, but maybe haven't had enough to say about them to turn into its own full-fledged review. So I just thought I'd condense my thoughts on some of them into this little um, this little segment. Um, so sort of similar to what I did um, with my best of 2022, where I did like 10 reviews at once. I don't think it's going to be as many, um, but obviously I'm going to keep adding to this with other ones um, as I'm going and as I'm watching things throughout the year. If it's one that I don't have enough to say about, I'll probably put it here rather than give it its own episode. So yeah, hopefully you'll join me. I think there's going to be some interesting stuff here. You know, if, if it's on here, I've got enough to say about it, but maybe not enough to make a full review. So, I just want to put a quick note up front. Um, there is a lot of things that I am going to be talking about in this review, um, you know, in these short little reviews that I have seen this year and I'm quite excited by. There's also some other stuff that I either, from the last two years, that I either haven't seen yet or am not reviewing here. And in a lot of cases, that is because I am planning to do a bigger, more focused content episode on the franchise or whatever it is about it coming up, right? And obviously, I I said this uh, last year as well. There were last year there were things like the the Star Wars series that I hadn't covered, things like Kenobi and um, Andor. Uh, again, that's also true this year for Ahsoka and Mandalorian, because again, I have episodes coming up where I'm going to be discussing Star Wars under both Disney and Dave Filoni in like the two separate areas. But then there's other things, some of which I mentioned earlier on in the year when I did my 2022 review, when I covered, where I spoke about how I hadn't seen things like House of the Dragon or Rings of Power. And it's like, yes, they're on my list. I will cover them in the future. Invincible, I know season two dropped this year. I still haven't seen season one. I'm planning to review them both together. Um, Monarch, uh, the new MonsterVerse series, Godzilla Minus One. I'm planning to review both of those along with the rest of the MonsterVerse at some point in the future. Um, Transformers Rise of the Beast, I intended to to view and I haven't seen it yet. Uh, Halo from last year, I still haven't got around to seeing. Continental, which is based in the John Wick franchise. Uh, the Sandman TV series. My Adventures with Superman, the new cartoon series. Um the Percy Jackson series, which is has just started, you know, all of these things I'm going to be doing content episodes on later on. And then obviously the Marvel shows as well. Secret Invasion, the Marvels, um, I haven't spoken about yet. And it's because I'm going to do, and Loki as well, I'm going to be doing a more focused Marvel Phase 5 review episode. So yeah, if if there's something that you were excited for me to cover that I don't mention here, chances are it is coming up. There's a lot of things on my list that I really want to watch, that I really want to get round to watching. Um, and obviously, at, at the moment, with time being limited, I tend to focus on either the things I'm making a large planned episode for, 
or things that are, are jumping to the top of my list. So for a lot of the ones here, this is films. You know, films that I've I've seen throughout the year, or well, most often, quite recently, in fact. Um, you know, films that I've seen quite recently and wanted to get some thoughts on. Um, most of my other reviews, as you may have noticed, it's things like the Marvel movies, this um you know, Star Trek TV shows. And that's because that those are my fandoms. Power Rangers as well. Those are my fandoms. Those are the things that I've seen and discussed and, and you know, done more of at this point. Um, video games is a bit different. I do want to do some more reviews on video games, um, but they tend to be a much bigger time sink. Cyberpunk was already something that I was playing, hence why I've been able to review that and review Phantom Liberty. Um but, you know, something like, for example, Baldur's Gate 3 was this year. I haven't played that. I really, really want to, and I'm planning to in the future. Um, I'm actually thinking after the new year, probably, you know, in the new year, looking at strict Twitch streaming, um, where I will probably do some game reviews on there. Like, not just modern games but also some other games for retro reviews so things that i'm hoping to discuss on there are things like um you know control the wolfenstein series fallout new vegas um you know maybe even some of my gameplay on doom which i'm awful at but i have a lot of fun with it you know um so yeah if, if that's something you are willing to join me with, then that's something that we can possibly do as well. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, if there's something here that I haven't discussed yet, chances are I'm going to do it in the future. So, for example, uh, House of the Dragon Series 1, I'm hoping to get round to when Series 2 drops, you know, in the lead-up to Series 2 dropping, um, or, or review both seasons together um invincible i'm hoping to do in the new year um you know and other other things like that like i've discussed or like i said other uh other things i have spoken about like the marvel films transformers films the godzilla franchise um you know halo john wick sandman i'm planning on discussing those in their own time with their own things so yeah, that's when I'm going to be discussing some of this stuff in the future. And this is without even getting into some of the, the DC shows that, you know, I've been wanting to watch for a while. Things like Doom Patrol. I'll probably do a big review on that when I eventually get around to watching it. You know, that that came to an end this year. So did um, Titans as well. So, you know, I want to look at these things in the future. And so that's when they're going to be discussed. But that said, there's still some very good things here that I do want to discuss, some of which call back to previous episodes, some of which um, are just fun things that I think some people may have missed, um, or, you know, are, are things that maybe people haven't spoken about in a huge amount, and, you know, I just want, I just had thoughts on. So, yeah, let's uh, let's get to it. Right, so the first thing I want to talk about here, and this is one that I thought I might have more to say about it, like to the point I was actually planning on doing it almost like a full review in its own right. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, 
while it's decent and while I enjoy it, there's very little here that you can really talk about without it becoming very bizarre to listen to. Um, as I realised whenever I sat, tried to sit down and write my thoughts about it. And that's uh, Apple TV's Strange Planet. Now, Strange Planet, for those who aren't aware, is a webcomic, and I think there was also um, uh, you know, a novel series produced, well, say novel, like picture book series, done by uh, Nathan W. Pyle. Um, it's quite simple. It's essentially little comedic sketches with um, these blue alien beings, and they kind of talk around and and do sort of like slice-of-life comedy stuff. Um, but what makes it charming, quite quaint and quite quirky, is the fact that because they are aliens, they speak about things in a very roundabout way. You know, um, in a way that's kind of hard to explain, but is very intuitive once you actually um, start following it. I think I'll probably have to like get a couple of examples of the comic book up um, while I'm recording this to, to sort of explain it properly. But, um, you know, this, this was then turned to a, a cartoon series um, by... Uh, by Dan Harmon, who obviously has worked on Rick and Morty, Community, um, so many great shows, and obviously turned to this little half an hour format animated um, show. Here is an example of uh, one of the comics. So it's a character following a recipe, and another being comes in and says, you chose a complicated sustenance formula. And the being cooking says, it was a mistake. And the, the one looking at the recipe book says, are you missing a necessary component? And the other one says, yes, sustained motivation. And the other one says, okay, so what phase are you in? And then the being cooking says, regret. So it's literally, yeah, I don't have the motivation to cook anymore to follow this recipe. It's too complicated and I regret my choices. But it's just charming. And it's one of those things that they make me... Not necessarily laugh out loud, but they do make me smirk, and there's a really charming quality to them. So I like, I like the comics, and I like enjoying, you know, the idea behind them. And I think the idea is quite interesting. Like the, you know, how would aliens see the world? And in a lot of cases, it's like they they have the same things as us. They just call them very different things, and that can be quite comical on its own. But it means that, I don't know, maybe there isn't quite enough there for a, a comedy cartoon show. But actually watching it, this show isn't bad. Each episode kind of tackles uh, a different theme. Um, the voice cast is very, very good um, throughout the show. Um, and there's a lot of quite good guest stars who are maybe in it for one episode, maybe two, if you're lucky, um, and might play like the central being in that particular episode, but you might not see them again. And yeah, you know, there's, there's an episode about animals, there's an episode about sports and like fandom, 
um, a, you know, some about family, and they're all perfectly charming, perfectly lovely. Um, there's usually a song. There's a couple of recurring characters, and you know what? They're all just beings. You know, none of them get a name. Um, you know, they don't refer to themselves by name. They don't refer to anyone else by name. Um, and there's, but there's a couple of recurring locations and a couple of recurring characters that kind of do give the series a through line and give it a story of sorts. And like I said, it's all perfectly charming and perfectly engaging. But it's kind of hard to explain. But it's an interesting one. It's not really a science fiction. It's not really a... It's, it, there's elements of fantasy to it, I suppose, with it being a, a parallel world kind of thing going on. But all it is is just a, a quite charming slice-of-life story more than anything else. And it's one I wanted to talk about, but I, I thought I would have a lot more to say about it than I actually do. And so that's why it's here, rather than in a, a full review of its own. Just because, you know, while I like it, and I do, I do it is, like I said, it's perfectly charming. And it's just, you know, well animated, well acted. You know, it's got some good thematics in it. It's even got a couple of catchy songs in it. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is quite relatable. Like, a lot of the situations that these beings are going through are perfectly relatable stuff. You know, the first episode, a character gets promoted at their job. And then, you know, her co-workers start looking at her differently and she has these new responsibilities and she's struggling with them. And, you know, or there's a couple who's, who's you know, been following this band on tour all around the, you know, the the orb, as, as the, uh, the planet's called. They've been following them all around the orb. And then this band breaks up. And now they are like, well, should we break up? What do we have in our life besides this band? You know, and that's just a couple of the plot lines in the first episode. And the, the main characters of those plot lines, we don't see, they, they don't take the role, the lead roles in the other episodes, you know. So, you know, one of the ones in the second episode, is a, there's a kid who wants a pet. And he becomes very enamored with uh, what he calls the grayscale finger bandit. It's a raccoon. <laughs> you know, it's a raccoon climbing around in the trash. And he's like, oh, you know, I want the finger bandit for a pet. It's amazing. Um, and he just sees it as this great animal. He becomes enamored with it, watching it out of his window. But again, he's only really in that episode, that child. He's not really a, you know, him and his mother aren't really involved in any of the other episodes. But you know, there is a through line, there is a plot, there are some recurring characters. There's a, a restaurant called Careful Now, um, which is on the edge of, of like an abyss. Um, and there's a looming double shadow day, which is like a double eclipse, um, which is obviously going to be the, the building plot element leading up towards the, f uh, the final. But yeah, for, for a 10-part animated 
sort of feel-good cartoon. You could do far worse than Strange Planet. And yeah, it's interesting enough whether it'll get a second season. I don't know. But, you know, I, Apple TV isn't one that I've really had a good look at. It, it's getting some more shows as it's going on that I would want to enjoy. Strange Planet is one that I'd be... I'd probably put on if I wanted something just to cheer me up a bit. So, yeah, it's perfectly enjoyable, perfectly fine for what it is. Maybe nothing spectacular, but a lot of fun. Right, second thing I want to put in this little selection of, like, roundup reviews, um, just because I really enjoyed it, and I, I don't see a lot of people talking about it. It's sort of released, and I don't think it really did that well when it released um and then just kind of seems to have flown under the radar of a lot of people like it only made 60.7 million dollars on a budget of 45 million but i found this a really enjoyable movie and that's 65 now 65 is a science fiction film it's written and directed by scott beck and brian woods those are the co-writers of uh, A Quiet Place, which I've not seen, but heard nothing but great things about. And it stars Adam Driver and Ariana Greenblatt, who I've already spoken about um, recently this year um, for her role in Barbie. Um, and I'm probably going to be talking about it again because I know she's playing Ahsoka um, in the series for that. So I'm going to be talking about her when I do my Star Wars stuff very soon. Uh, you know, very early next year. But, yeah, she's in this and Adam Driver is in this. And I like them both, um, generally, as actors. I, I like a lot of the stuff I've seen them in. Um, and this film, I remember when the trailers came out, like, I remember wanting to... I remember thinking, oh, this looks kind of cool. Um you know it's but the i don't think the marketing kind of did this justice cuz the marketing kind of shows it as a kind of almost like a weird time travel story like adam drivers ended up on earth 65 million years in the past but that's not quite the plot instead adam driver and the um the other characters we see are aliens. Like Adam Driver is a pilot for a colony ship. The colony ship gets caught in a meteor storm, asteroid storm, and crashes onto prehistoric Earth. And it crashes onto prehistoric Earth because it's around the same time of prehistoric Earth. This is an ancient alien civilization. They crash land on prehistoric Earth. Adam Driver is the pilot, he's still alive, and he finds Ariana Greenblatt, who is the only other survivor. And, um, yeah, Mills is Adam Driver's name. Uh, Ariana Greenblatt's uh, character is called Koa. Koa does not speak the same language as Adam Driver. So they've got this, this issue communicating as well, first of all. But, you know, the plot is them trying it's almost got a bit of an adventure to it like they're trying to get back to 
um you know the remains of like one half of the ship that's landed on a very distant place away from them and they're trying to get there because the big asteroid is coming like the asteroid storm that hit them in space is was the advance of the asteroid you know the one that wipes out the dinosaurs and so that's what they're trying to avoid. Like, the movie itself is called 65, but when the title card comes up, it doesn't say 65. It says, 65 million years ago, Earth had a visitor. Like, that's the tagline of the movie, but that's technically the title. You know, that's what the title of the film is. It's Earth had a visitor. You know, like, and... You know, there are some very good dinosaur elements in this, like fictionalized dinosaurs. Like, there's not much realistic looking dinosaur, and, and they are very scaly. There's not so much of the feathers that you would expect from like actual dinosaurs. There's more of the, the large scales that you might expect from something like, you know, if you're the sort of person who's watched a lot of Jurassic Park, for example. But it's quite fun. It's quite fun. There's some there's some interesting stuff going on. Um, there's some really good character stuff between Koa and Mills. Um, you know, some very very nice stuff between them. There's a couple of really tense moments where they're being chased by the dinosaurs. Um, you know, a couple of the creatures that attack them are, are quite creepy looking. Um, you know, and then there's. And there's other bits as well. Like there's um, there's these video messages that Mills has from his daughter, and his daughter was ill. This is the whole reason why he took the job. His daughter is called Naveen, and she's played by Chloe Coleman. Now Chloe Coleman was she was the daughter in uh, Dungeons and Dragons, which I reviewed earlier in this year as well. And was it earlier this year? Last year? Whatever I reviewed Dungeons and Dragons. That was a good film. That was a really good film. I really enjoyed that. It was this year, wasn't it? Yeah, earlier this year. I really enjoyed that. She was quite good in it. She's quite good in this as well. Um, even though you only you don't really see her in live action or interacting with other characters, you see her mainly through video messages. But she's good. She holds her own. Um so yeah, that's two very good child actors in this one. Uh, well, not, ch- not children, really, either. Just young actors. You know, both quite good. Um, and yeah, this this came out earlier in the year, kind of flew under the radar. You know, it's got a lot of mixed reviews, but I quite enjoyed it. There's a lot of... You know, there's some decent action in it. The graphics are quite good. The character stuff is is decent. It's played capably by two very good actors. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what I was expecting going in off the trailers, but I had a really good time with it. So, yeah, I think... You know, and you can predict in some elements where the plot is going to go. Like, you know that the asteroid is going to hit once you find out about the asteroid. Because it's the asteroid that wipes out the dinosaurs. Um, But yeah, even then, 
they do some good stuff with it. And even over the credits, there's still some some good stuff. Um, as they kind of show what happened on Earth in the aftermath, you know, right through to, like, the modern day. But, yeah, it's... It's kind of the adventure story as they're trying to get to this escape craft so that they can get off the planet. Um, but yeah, a lot of fun. Some good stuff. And, you know, getting to see Adam Driver do some quite realistic um, action stuff compared to his work in Star Wars. You know, getting to see him all kind of grimed up and grubby and with a gun you know because the dude was a marine so he can do that um and you know parts of this look like they might have been hard to film as well like there's some tense stuff yeah it's good it's a lot of fun i enjoyed it so third film on this list is well second film third product is megan or as i've also seen it called mithrigan um which i like to call it as sometimes just to wind my children up (laughs) but yeah megan is it came out back in january it's from blumhouse pictures it's written by kayla cooper and james wan um kayla cooper's also worked on uh, Malignant, Nun 2, uh, James Wan has obviously worked on Insidious, Conjuring, Saw, uh, and Aquaman as well. Um, this is a very good little film. Like, I, I knew I was going to like this one. Like, I liked the trailers on it. Like, it just looked fun. Like, a rogue killer doll you know, that's gone crazy with AI and obviously Tallulah liking dolls. She (laughs) had really wanted to see this one. And yeah, I watched it. It was quite good. It's got, it's got, it's got a young girl called, uh, Katie played by Violet McGraw, um, who was apparently also in Ready Player One which I've not seen yet. Um, but she plays, you know, she loses her parents. She has to move in with her aunt. Um, her aunt, Gemma, works at a Seattle toy company, and she's like a roboticist. And they've just launched, like, this new, uh, you know, kids' toy, um, but one of their competitors is now undercutting them. She's basically... Gemma, the, the the roboticist, she's uh, played by Alison Williams, who I've not seen in anything else before. Apparently, she's in Girls, the HBO series. I I don't know her. I've not seen that. Um, you know, she's trying to work on creating a humanoid robotic doll that's child sized, powered by AI like proper AI, like artificial intelligence, designed to be like the ultimate companion for children. And she gets told to to discontinue the work on it, but then she struggles to connect to Katie, her niece, until, um, you know, 
she decides to sort of finish Megan for Katie and then shows the the Megan that she's made and Katie's interaction with it to her boss and that's where it becomes like oh this is amazing we've you know we've got to do this we've got to make this the must-have toy you know this is going to be really expensive but really worth it kind of thing and the Megan doll as well just want to say this Megan doll is how they've realized it in the film is through the portrayal of two very good actors um and prosthetics and cgi and animatronic okay there is a young girl called amy donald she is a uh, child actress and dancer she is doing the physical portrayal of megan okay megan also uses there's also an animatronic that they used for megan and there's also a cgi uh, like a mask and they could use the animatronic for a lot of the facial stuff and also for um you know cgi projection to kind of put it on top of the face whenever they were using like a long shot with amy donald and then there's also the voice work which is done by jenna davis and it's really good like megan feels believable but at the same time there's always that element of real uncanny valley about her which is kind of unsettling and does work for a horror movie like that's what they're going for um and this was made really cheaply as well made for like 12 million dollars went over to make like 181 million became really successful um but yeah i i want to especially uh, praise amy donald because so much of the physicality of megan in this comes from her and there's like interviews with the director where he's talking about like you know they uh gerald johnston the director said like you know they they came up with these these ideas and because Amy Donald was a trained dancer, they were like, can you do it? And she's like, yeah, or I'll learn. And like taught herself to do things. And she, some of the feats that she pulls off as Megan are just ridiculously impressive. And they make, like she came up with the dance that went viral and was on all the trailers. Um, there's a bit where Megan like crawls on all four and kind of crawl runs. And it's one of the most unsettling things I think I've ever seen. And she did it for real. There's one where she kind of stands up from like lying down flat, but like in a snaky, like breakdance kind of way. Um, yeah, very, very impressive stuff. And yeah, obviously, you know, plot wise, it's kind of predictable. You know, the. Um, you know, Megan kind of starts trying to protect Katie and goes to a very kind of ridiculous, quite lethal extreme to do so, you know, to make things better for Katie. And that leads to her sort of going berserk almost and, and killing people and becoming like this big threat. But it's just camp horror and humor throughout and like it is fun (laughs) 
Like, it is a fun movie. And, you know, you are kind of waiting for that bit where everything goes wrong. You know, and there are a couple of, you know, quite gruesome kills early on. But most things are saved for the third act. And the third act is is pretty good but you know horror movie rules the the people who get their comeuppance are completely despicable um there's some people that you're like oh no i kind of don't want them to die they're kind of nice and you know for the most part they don't um so yeah it's standard horror movie stuff it doesn't break the mold doesn't do anything fantastic but it's really fun and it looks really good like it's a very slickly made film i think you know there's some good needle drops on the score there's a lot of good um foreshadowing and and stuff like that like the way things are kind of you know everything that's set up gets paid off um and you know the third act is great like there's some really good stuff some really tense moments some really good stuff with the animatronics um in fact there's some very very good animatronic work towards the end of the third act um and you know all the characters are just like decently played you know by the cast that we've seen i've not seen any of this cast in anything else really um you know, except for one of the guys is like a contributor on The Daily Show. Um, you know, I've seen them on The Daily Show and um, uh, last week with John Oliver as well. I saw him on. Um, but yeah, it's fine. And there's going to be a sequel. Like, they've already announced they're doing a sequel. The sequel's going to be out early 2025. I think that January slot really kind of works for them because it's kind of the post-Christmas... You know, oh, what else are you going to go watch? It's a bit weird that it didn't come out around Halloween. Um, but, yeah, it was a fun little film. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing uh, Mithrigan 2.0, as it's going to be called. Which, by the way, I called that even before they announced it. I was like, oh, they're going to do a new one, and it's going to be Megan 2.0. You know, like an update-style thing. And, yeah, that's exactly what it is, Megan 2.0. Um, and from the looks of it, they're bringing back Akela Cooper to write the script. They're bringing back uh, Williams and McGraw to reprise their roles as Gemma and Katie. And apparently, Gerald Johnston is uh, talking about coming back to return as the director. So, you know, it's going to be one of those. If you like this, there's going to be more of it. And I think you know, it's nothing brilliant. It's not an amazing horror movie by any means, but. You know, Megan has the possibility of being like a new horror icon, like up there with kind of Chucky, <laughs> you know, as kind of this weird doll icon. Um, oh, what's the what's the one from Conjuring? Annabelle. You know the the kind of the weird doll, and I like that this is the the sort of the AI, the learning toy as well, um, because that seems to be a thing as well, where it's like. You know, it's the, it's the kind of the techno 
horror, the techno thriller aspect of it. Like all these technology is learning so quickly and it's becoming a horror. Th- you know, it, it, a lot of that's kind of been the prevalence of sci-fi up until now, but most technology now is becoming so ingrained in our lives at like every level that it's just everywhere. And so this is one where it kind of, you know, the technology is everywhere and we're so used to it that even the point that there are probably more advanced computer chips inside most kids' toys now than were in some games consoles 30 years ago, you know? Or top-of-the-line computers 30 years ago. And they're now in toys. So, in terms of that, Megan probably isn't too much of a reach. In t- like, I used to work in retail in a toy store. I saw how advanced some of these things were getting. And it is getting crazy. Just how cheap and how affordable some of this stuff is. That they're able to put these really advanced computer chips now into toys. Um, and obviously Megan is a bit more ridiculous than that, but yeah, the idea of a kind of horror toy goes back to sort of the things from like small soldiers, I suppose, where you got the the computer chips in that, you know, that's not so much of a, a science fiction idea anymore. Um, so yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know they did do an update with Chucky where they made him like a learning toy like this, like a an AI toy. But I think this this is better for that. I think Chucky is Chucky. You know, the horror, the possessed doll, the voodoo thing. Keep this as this, as keep keep Megan as the AI doll. I think it works better. And. So yeah, I'm hoping the second one is just as good. Um, I'd be very interested if the same actress comes back as Megan because obviously she was a lot younger. You know, she's a preteen. You know, how much has she grown? <laughs> you know, is it going to be feasible to have her play the doll still? Or would they need to get someone else? Because I think a large part of why Megan was so good was all the practical aspects that went into it. And that includes not just the the physical performance from Amy Donald, but also the prosthetics and stuff. And it's like, you could do the prosthetics, you could do the animatronics, but so much of the character of Megan is in that physical performance. You know, things like that dance went viral because she came up with it. You know, so... But yeah, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I actually had probably a bit more to say about it than I thought I did, considering this is the longest segment here so far. Um, so yeah, Megan, what did you think about it? The Dark Universe, who remembers that? If you don't, you're not alone. I think most people forgot about the Dark Universe. Um, the Dark Universe, for anyone who who doesn't remember or has maybe missed where I've spoken about it before, the Dark Universe was an attempt by Universal Pictures to build a shared universe using its horror and monster properties. 
So the old classic universal monsters. So Dracula, the Wolfman, the Vampire, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, etc. All of that. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde. That was the whole idea behind the dark universe. It was the idea that you know Universal owned the film rights to a lot of these classic literary and film monsters and wanted to sort of tie them together. The problem was the two movies that they released, because they did release two. Everyone thinks they only released one, which was The Mummy. They did release two. They basically did a DC Universe with it, which is the first film they released didn't do very well. Didn't test very well, didn't do very well. So they kind of downplayed a lot of the shared universe aspects before they released it, like cut a lot of references here and there. And that first movie was Dracula Untold. Um, You know, which I've heard described as not a terrible film. Like, I haven't seen it myself, but I've been told it's not terrible. It's just not very good. It's kind of, you know, the origins of um, Dracula by creating doing the sort of Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler, with Luke Evans, I believe, who was obviously quite a hot property off the back of um, his role in The Hobbit at the time. Uh, I think this was just before he went on to be in Beauty and the Beast. I'm not thinking of the right one, Luke Evans. I believe so. Uh, Bard the Bowman and Gaston. Anyway, um... But then that didn't do very well. So just like DC did with Green Lantern, they kind of decided, okay, that's not part of the film universe anymore. We're going to do another one. We're going to have a second go. We're going to have a mulligan at the whole thing. And that's when they released The Mummy. The Mummy being the uh, Tom Cruise one, which was so full of connected universe references and also was not a good film. Um, To the point that the the dark universe was basically dead on arrival so so what happened then all these plot lines and ideas that universal had all had to basically now be completely reworked you know they weren't going to do a bride of frankenstein film they weren't going to do a jekyll and hyde film so you know and they obviously weren't going to do another dracula film so they had to kind of rework everything and this is where you then got the film that I'm talking about now, which is Renfield. Um, Renfield is based on a pitch by Robert Kirkman. Robert Kirkman, for those who don't know, is the co-creator of both The Walking Dead and Invincible. He is a comic book writer and screenwriter, very talented chap, and by all accounts, a lovely dude. Um Now, he pitched this film as like a comedic approach to the story of Dracula, sort of similar to what Taika Waititi did with what we do in The Shadows, except this time more specifically about the Dracula mythos. And it was going to focus on the character of Renfield. And so the film got made and got released uh, and came out... um, Early this year, back in March, well, no, April, uh, it was it was finally released. It's quite a short film; it's only ninety three minutes, which sometimes can be a sign that maybe 
they don't have a huge amount of faith in the product. In fact, I think all the movies I've talked about uh, so far in this have been relatively short. And that's usually a sign that maybe they're trying to recoup the money by getting as many showings as possible. But this was a lot of fun. <laughs> it's Nicholas Holt as Renfield, um, Nicholas Cage as Count Dracula, and he is just amazing. He's clearly having the time of his life in this. Um, Nicholas Cage, I, I remember there's that episode of Community where they're like, is he a good actor or a bad actor? You know? Um, and is it, was, it, was it Community that did it, or was it American Dad? One of the two. Kind of saying, you know, was he a good actor or a bad actor? I think he's... I. I think he's quite underrated. I usually have a lot of fun watching Nicolas Cage, even if the film he's in is terrible. Um, you know, he always seems to be just having fun with the projects he makes. And I know Superman and Dracula are the two that are on the top of his bucket list of, like, characters he wants to play. And this is him playing Dracula. And he, in a lot of respects, he is a very classic, universal, Hammer Horror-style count dracula um but yeah the plot of the film is just ridiculous because it's not set in england you know it's not set in um you know the victorian era it's not set is it, is it victorian or georgian when it takes place i can't remember um but either way it's not set in the past it's not set um you know, even in a big city in America, like New York or something like that. No, this is set in uh, New Orleans. And <laughs> it is set in New Orleans. New Orleans uh, in this is portrayed as a, a city of kind of crime and corruption. There's a, a large crime family with um, the main, you know, the matriarch of it played by uh, Shore Ag Agdashlu. Um, and the main heir to the family, played by Ben Schwartz. Um, and, you know, there's a, a, a cop, played by Aquafina, who is desperately trying to make a difference in, like, this very corrupt town and very corrupt city. Um, and just kind of dealing with that. Um, and into the middle of all this is Renfield. Renfield in this, the approach they've decided to take with this, I love, which is that Renfield is a codependent person. So he's basically a victim of abuse at Dracula's hands um, because he's in this abusive, very toxic relationship that he can't break away from. And so he's in, like, a self-help group for this, which he originally joined to try and find victims for Dracula, but instead finds victims of the people that are causing the people in this group harm. You know, the, the, the partners that they have that they're trying to escape from. And so as a result of that, he ends up getting involved in some mob violence, ends up with the mob after him, and it's revealed that Renfield has powers, like he's able to eat bugs and he gets like elements of Dracula's powers, which leads to some of the most ridiculous and overblown gore fest explosion, like pure splatter 
um, kills and craziness that I think I've seen in any movie for a long time. Like, probably since I watched the Evil Dead series last year, um, in terms of just how ridiculous and over-the-top some of this is. It's so much fun. And isn't really ridiculous at all. <laughs> Sorry, realistic. Isn't really realistic at all. It's very ridiculous. Um, and that, to me, is what really works with splatter films. Like, I like splatter films that are bizarre and just so over the top. And that's what this is. And I had a lot of fun with this. So much fun. Um, and... Yeah, I really like the approach they've taken with it of just like Renfield being this really downtrodden character desperately trying to get out of this terrible situation he's in. You know, this abusive situation that he's in under Dracula. And it's like, there are elements of, like, the classic Dracula mythos in this. Like, there's a, a flashback scene where we see, like, a vampire hunter and church people, like, coming after Dracula. But a lot of this is kind of a crime film with Dracula in it. But I also don't hate it for that. Because so much of this is anchored around the character of Renfield, and he's really good. Like, Nicholas Holt is a great actor. I like him in a lot of the things I've seen him in. Um, and I like him playing this type of role. Like, this was very similar to the role he played in Warm Bodies, where he's kind of, you know, he's narrating the movie, he's the lead of the movie, um, but also he's not the most expressive or or anything like that because of the character he's playing. But it's kind of still got a, a very good charm to it. So yeah, it's yeah, there's there's just some good moments in it. Aquafina's in it; she's quite funny. I, I think she's someone that a lot of people have kind of a divisive opinion on. Um, I've only seen her in this and Shang Chi, and I really liked her in both of them. Like she does the comic relief stuff very, very well. Like, she's the comic relief character in Shang-Chi, but everything that she does in a comic relief element in that actually works. Like, she's the only character responsible for the comic relief in that. In this, there's a lot more comedy coming from the other stuff, but it's... Her comedy in the film comes from her lines reacting to that. Like, she's very much the everyman who kind of gets shown this ridiculous world that Renfield and Dracula are a part of, while also trying to deal with, you know, police corruption and the mob. And, yeah, it's just fun. <laughs> you know, yeah, Aquafina, Ben Schwartz as well, again, very funny. Like him in quite a lot of things. Um, he's playing very similar character to his one in Parks and Rec, who is one of those where he's annoying, but in the best way. Um, you know, where you kind of can't take your eyes off of him. Um, Shoreg Dashlu, she's great. Again, I like her. She's got a very distinctive voice. Um, you know, I, I was first introduced to her as a voice actress. 
um because she was in mass effect um but she, yeah she's she's very good in this cuts a very intimidating figure um but yeah, it's, it's Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage that are the, the standouts of this piece. You know, they're both so much fun, especially Nicholas Cage. He is clearly having so much fun as Dracula and the scenes of him really highlighting this abusive relationship between him and Renfield. I think it was the perfect way to go for the story. I think it's acted really well between the two of them. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I've said that a lot this 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 episode. I've had a lot of fun with these things. Renfield is a very good time. I recommend watching it. I really do. I think if you like Dracula, if you're after an interesting take on the Dracula mythos, this is probably one of the most interesting ones you're going to get for a while. You know, it's well written and it's very funny. Next, I want to talk uh, very briefly about the sequel to two films I spoke about last year, and that is A Haunting in Venice. Now, A Haunting in Venice is the next uh, Kenneth Branagh, Hercule Poirot movie. And it's not bad. Um, I don't think it's bad. I don't think any of the Poirot movies are bad. Um, you know, the, the Branagh ones. And I think Kenneth Branagh's definitely doing a very interesting thing um, with his adaptations, and they're not direct adaptations of the books. Like, this one is pretty much in name only an adaptation of a Halloween party. Like, it has almost a completely different set of characters um, and almost a completely unique... Um, setting and story and in fact some of the adaptations of characters that are in the original novels like Ariadne Oliver for example who's played here by Tina Fey are very very different now most of the Poirot stuff I have watched is the David Suchet Poirot Um, so I'm much more familiar with the character of Captain Hastings who was uh, Poirot's sort of um partner in a lot of the stories um simply because the books that were being adapted at the time that i watched those poirot films were the ones that featured captain hastings ariadne oliver appears much later on in the books and she's essentially uh, agatha christie's self-insert character she's that shares a lot of similarities with christie herself you know she's investigative because she knows quite a lot about murder she writes a murder series uh you know she's an authoress who writes a murdering a series about uh, someone who solves murders a detective and a detective that she actively hates but can't stop writing because he's popular which was exactly what christie felt uh, about poirot at the time now This movie, these Poirot films are are quite good in a lot of ways because the first two were adaptations of two of the biggest and most well-known Agatha Christie uh, Poirot stories, which were Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. Um, You know, those are 
the stories that inspired the genre of you know crime and detective fiction so kenneth branagh when adapting them had to you know do things to to adapt them to to make them different to to surprise the audience who might already be familiar with those stories because let's be honest a lot of people are familiar with those stories um and you know make it interesting and engaging and that's been done in a lot of ways um such as giving poirot a backstory giving him a character arc of his own um giving him his own quirks and personality, um, altering some of the characters, changing their their backstories, their dynamics, shifting them around, um, you know, for the suspects in the story. Halloween Party, however, is one of the lesser-known Christie stories. And so A Haunting in Venice, like the, the trailers for Haunting in Venice didn't even really indicate that it was a poirot film until quite late on like the the original teaser trailer i think was something like a minute and a half poirot only appears in the final few seconds of the trailer and for the rest of that it's essentially a horror story (laughs) like it looks like a horror film um you know starring tina fey and uh, michelle yeo and I think it works for that. I think this, there are elements here where I'm like, okay, yes, they're going for a horror element, but obviously it's a pyro mystery. There are more, more natural conclusions to the story, more expected conclusions. Um, you know, things are a bit more straightforward and a bit more down to earth than some of the more mysterious and spooky elements would suggest. And in fact, it's, um, you know, the the scepticism of Poirot that helps sort of unravel that. But even then, there are some very good horror elements at play here. And I think the film itself, it's not anything special to write home about. It's, it's an interesting chapter in the life of this Poirot, because this is now post-war. So the original two films were set between the two wars. So you had Poirot as a veteran of World War I, now as a detective, um, prior to the outbreak of World War II. This is set, like, almost a decade after the previous film. Um, So it's set in 1947. So... You know, we're very definitely post-war, and Poirot is much older and much more jaded and has gone through a lot of stuff off-screen. He's had significant development, and he's very much retired, almost, at the start of the movie. And this is the case that kind of brings him back and makes him Poirot again. Um... I don't know if it works very well as a trilogy. Like, There's not much through line from the previous movies, but as a film in its own, that story works really well. As a film in its own, like a chapter in Poirot's story, that take works really well. Um, 
and the film itself is very wonderfully shot like it's shot on location in venice as best as i can tell um it's quite atmospheric quite um quite dimly lit in some places by design um and a lot of the the angles the shots the the shot composition like this is all a very deliberate choice by kenneth branner to shoot it in a way that feels atmospheric that feels like a horror film and for the most part i think it works um there's a couple of shots which are very very memorable there's one with a particular uh, with a china cup that falls and shatters and it's all done in this very tight close-up and slow motion um works really well as as a, a visual and I think it was a practical shot as well. It doesn't look um, CGI. It looks like you know, they've actually dropped and shattered a China Cup. So, yeah. Um, basically, I enjoyed this film. I quite liked the, the ending. I didn't see the resolution coming. Um, I was actually kind of starting to wonder if maybe there would be some of the some of the horror elements might take effect. I do know Tallulah was very annoyed at the adaptation of Ariadne Oliver. Um, so if you are a Poirot fan, like she has read all of Agatha Christie's books. Like we have a collection of them in our front room. She's a very large Agatha Christie fan. Um, and Ariadne Oliver is her favourite character that Christie wrote. She is not a fan of Ariadne Oliver in this film. Um, so make of that what you will. If you're a big fan of that character, you might not like some of the things that are done here. But I think it all works in service of the story. And I think the story works. The conclusion's good. And it ends on a note that suggests that we could get more of these. Uh, whether the more of these will include Ariadne Oliver returning, I don't know. Um, I think it would be interesting if she did. Um, but personally, I'd rather see Captain Hastings because I quite like that dude. I also think it would be interesting because now we're in a, an area of like uh, cinematic universes, for example. Would it be possible perhaps to have uh, Poirot interact with uh, Miss Marple, who is obviously another big Agatha Christie detective? Um, whose stories were written at a later time than Poirot. Um, you know, it reminds me of there was a, a BBC series that said, did something very similar with a load of Dickens characters and kind of had them all sharing the same area of London. Uh, I think it was just called Dickensian. Um, and you had, like, the characters from... Bleak House and Scrooge from A Christmas Carol and um, the characters from Oliver Twist and, uh, you know, etc. All all in London at the same time. You know, you, you know when you start listing books and then your mind goes completely blank on a list of works of the most famous author in British history. Yeah, I'll stick with that. I was debating it because it was like mm, Shakespeare, and I'm like, nah, Shakespeare was technically a playwright, not an author. But yeah, 
so yeah, one of the most lauded authors in classical British history. And it's like, I'm, I, I stuck at three books. There's way more. Great Expectations? Was that one of his? David Copperfield, that was. There you are. <laughs> so yeah, maybe. I, I don't know if Branner would be the one that would make that film, but I think there's a, a potential there for a spin-off or a, an exploration of the character of Marple, um, perhaps in a Poirot series, especially as these theme two keep shuffling them around. You know, it might be interesting, considering how much of this is almost an original adaptation, if, you know, how much of this is almost an original story, sorry, rather than an adaptation, if perhaps we get a completely original story like that. So, we'll see. I'm intrigued, and I think this is a series that that has legs. Like, yeah, I could quite happily watch Kenneth Branagh play Poirot for as long as he wants. I think he's quite charismatic in the role. I think he's got the characterization of Poirot and what he wants to do with the character down perfectly. So, yeah, let him do it. So my new job, which I started uh, early this month, involves me working from home. And as a result, um, me and Tallulah get to spend lunch together, um, which is lovely. And so it means we've been able to like sit and watch shows. And, you know, in the time that I was looking for the new job, um, I was we watched a lot of American Dad. And that was one that we, we quite liked because it's, it's very silly, very bizarre. Um, but, you know, there's a bit of a sci-fi element to it. There's a lot of nonsense going on. Uh, and I, I generally think of the the adult-themed cartoon shows that there are, things like American Dad, um, Simpsons, um, Family Guy, etc. I generally think American Dad is the better one. Um, you know, South Park as well. South Park's very good, but some parts of it are just still ridiculously edgy, I think, for no real need. Um, you know, and obviously this is why we're waiting for the new series of Rick and Morty to drop. So, you know, we thought, oh, we'll watch American Dad and we'll catch up on that. We caught up with all the American Dad episodes and then we were like, well, what else should we watch? And there was a show that I remembered um, that I'd seen one episode of and quite enjoyed. And it was an episode that it was a show that Netflix was running and had released not even a full season, I don't think. Or, or if it is, it's a season in two parts, like a part of ten episodes and a part of eight episodes. And earlier this year, they announced that they were cancelling it. And that show was Inside Job. So Inside Job, if you haven't seen it, is very, very, very bizarre. But it's a lot of fun. So Inside Job was created by one of the screenwriters who worked on Gravity Falls. And we, uh, Shion Takuchi. Or Takuchi, sorry. Um, probably butchering that name. Um, but Shion Takeuchi, she worked on... Um, you know, she's an animator, screenwriter, 
etc. She worked on Gravity Falls and Disenfranchise, uh, Disenchantment as well, on, which is also on Netflix. Um, Gravity Falls, obviously, she worked on under Alex Hirsch. At Gravity Falls, we watched last year, really enjoyed Gravity Falls. I'm planning on doing a more deep dive on that at some point in the future, um, probably as part of a larger discussion around animation in general. Um, but yes, fight to say Gravity Falls is a very good show. I enjoyed that a hell of a lot, um, especially as a Twin Peaks fan. <laughs> you know, uh, I could really see the references in that. Um, but yes, uh, Inside Job is Shion Takeuchi's baby, basically. And I think Alex Hirsch has kind of helped them to get it made because they're also a producer on it. Um, but the show itself is quite good. The show itself is basically, it basically takes every conspiracy theory, every ridiculous conspiracy theory that exists and puts it in a world where that conspiracy theory is either proven to be true or deliberately created by a government department to obfuscate from the actual real conspiracies. And that, to me, is such a great concept because it allows you to do so much. You know, it's like, oh, there's not a flat Earth, but there is a hollow Earth. You know, oh, there's not... Um, you know, the, there's not aliens running the government, but there are lizard people running the government. You know, it's... <laughs> It's so good and mainly focuses on a group of characters at one of the deep states, um, you know, big controlling organizations, which is called Cognito Inc. And Cognito Inc. work at the behest of a shadowy group of figures called the Robes. Um, who are basically trying to control the world. Like, everything Cognito Inc. does, and obviously they're competitors as well, so the Reptilians, the Atlanteans, the uh, the Illuminati, who are revealed in this as well, um, and, you know, the other organisations that are all part of this, you know, controlling underground network that, like, control the world, the New World, New world Order type thing. Um you know, Cognito Inc. is the deep state version. You know, this is the, the government-controlled one, but it's also like a private military company at the same time. Um, yeah, and it, and it focuses on the characters there. It's ridiculous and so much fun. Um, like, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, it originally came out at the end of 2021, um, it was the first, the first season, the first ten episodes. That's when they dropped. The second set of episodes dropped in November twenty twenty two, and it was cancelled in January this year. So it ended on a cliffhanger as a result of that. Yeah, and and I think it's a shame because I like what it had going for it. You know, like I said, it's it's a shadow government organization. Conspiracy theories are real, but not all of them. But the ones that aren't real are also like, you know, 
being controlled by the shadow government. Um, you know, there's the, the Illuminati, the Atlanteans, the Reptoids, uh, the Catholic Church, Juggalos as well, and Cognito Inc. They're the, the six organizations that control the world. <laughs> and we're focused on a main team inside Cognito Inc. And the main team that we have is uh, Reagan Ridley, who is a absolutely brilliant robotics engineer and scientist, absolute genius, um, but very, very socially awkward. And Reagan actually believes that society can be improved. Like her whole thing is trying to, she wants to become the boss so that she can make things better. She, she literally wants to make the world a better place. Um, and so she's quite good. She's a very good lead. Um, and most of the focus is on her and her character arc. She has some quite good character arc. She's voiced by Lizzie Kaplan, who I think does a brilliant job. Her father is played by Christian Slater, and he's Rand Ridley. Um, Rand has split from Reagan's mother. Uh, Reagan's mother is Tamiko. Um, Tamiko does not really appear much. She's much, very much a supporting character. Rand seems like a paranoid, washed-up drunk, but he's not. He was a former CEO and one of the co-founders of Cognito Inc., and he got fired because he nearly exposed the deep state. And so the robes fired him. And he's been plotting revenge ever since. And he's very emotionally manipulative and sometimes emotionally abusive almost towards Reagan and to Tamiko as well. And, you know, he, tr he tries to... He's probably the closest the show has to a recurring villain. I, I wouldn't say he is villainous, but his heart is not always in the right place. There is some good storytelling stuff that goes on with that and some very good stuff that the character arcs some very good directions that the character arcs take um and then the rest of the cast is filled out by um reagan's team so there is uh brett hand who is basically a former frat boy who is basically hired to be a yes man and he's quite simple but um you know, he's quite fun. Um, there's Gigi Thompson. She is a public relations officer from Georgia. She's very fast talking. She works on uh, media manipulation, subliminal messages, but also a big gossip and a big flirt. Um, she's kind of a one-note character, really. She gets some good stuff to do, but she's very much a background character, uh, which is one of the flaws of this whole thing, because... Besides Reagan and possibly Brett, none of the team are really expanded on that much. Um, and most of the other team members just go to be one-note jokes. And I'm, I think that probably would have improved had the show carried on going forward. And it's because the, the limited runtime of episodes means that it's very much focusing on the story. Um, and the story tends to focus around either Reagan or Rand, or usually both of them together, which means that a lot of the other cast 
become little more than side characters or running jokes throughout an episode. And it's a shame because I think there is some good stuff there with with Gigi and all the others that I'll cover in a minute. Um, But for the most part, they don't get a lot to do. Um, The other main members, there's Glenn Dolphman, um, who is a military officer, uh, military advisor, and he was part of a failed super soldier experiment that transformed him into a human-dolphin hybrid. Um, He's voiced by John DiMaggio. Very, very funny, but a lot of his... You know, he's he's very much kind of a one-note side character. There are some stuff that they do try and develop with him, but not as much. Um, there's Dr. Andre Lee, who is a Korean-American biochemist who is basically a massive stoner. Like, dabbles in all these really unusual narcotics that he creates. Like, his job is to create weird sort of mind-control drugs he's addicted to most of them because he tests them on himself, essentially. Um, And then there's Mike. Mike is short for Mycelium. He is a psychic mushroom-like organism from within the Hollow Earth. He is played by Brett Gelman, who plays um, Maury in Stranger Things. Uh, Not Maury, Murray in Stranger Things. He is great in this. Like, Mike is probably the one who gets developed the most, but again, it's very much with a specific role among the cast. Um, If you were to compare it to other shows at the time, so to use American Dad for an example, Mike is Roger from American Dad. He's that sort of role. You know, he's hyper-intelligent, but also acerbic and, you know, as much of a a thorn in the side of our protagonist as he is uh, their friend and ally. You know, he's... It's interesting. They do do some good stuff with him. There's a couple of episodes in season... Uh, part two, especially, um, that do give Mike some very interesting things to do. The rest, though... Not so much. There's two other characters who kind of really, you know, are part of the main cast. There's um, uh, JR, who's the CEO of Cognito in part one. Um, he's very crafty, very kind of... Um, he comes across like a Wall Street or politician type guy. Um, very slimy, very sleazy. Uh, and then there's Alpha Beta, who is he appears in the first episode. He is a robot designed to replace the president of the United States. Um, but in the first episode, he tries to take over the world, so Reagan keeps him locked up in the basement. But he keeps recurring um, throughout the series and does get some some development as well. So. It's not too bad. There's other characters who work there as well. And then there's uh, Adam Scott um, from Parks and Rec appears as a character in part two called Ron Statler, um, who's a member of the Illuminati. He becomes a recurring character in part two. But I don't really want to spoil who he is or what his role is in everything for anyone who hasn't seen it, because it is quite you know, he's quite focused in the plot. It's quite central to the plot of part two. Um, the show itself isn't bad. The episodes aren't too bad. Um, 
you know, they've all got quite an interesting uh, idea behind them, at least. You know, usually exposing some big conspiracy theory. Um, So, yeah, that's quite interesting. Like, for example, there's one where there's a wedding that gets uh, hijacked by Flat Earthers, but, of course, the Flat Earth turns out to be a fake conspiracy theory, so then they have to deal with that. Um, There's one that deals with the Hollow Earth. There's one that deals with... um, you know, mind, mind erasure, um, a city on the moon, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, there's some some interesting ideas. I do think part two is better, um, and that's because of a big twist that takes place towards the end of part one. So I don't want to spoil that for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it does kind of change the dynamic of the show and makes part two a lot more interesting. Um, and create some good character motivation going forward, especially for Reagan. But personally, I had a lot of fun with this show, and it made me quite sad that it was actually cancelled. Because, you know, I think I think it was a good show. I think it was a good idea. And I think there's promise here. And Netflix does this a lot. Netflix, you know, launches something and will stagger the release and then cancel it. And they tend to do it a lot more with animation, I've noticed. There's there's some animations that really seem to go the distance and there's others that don't. And Inside Jobs seems to be one of those that didn't. And I think it's a real shame. Because as well, the the model that split up season one into these two parts, which are separated by over a year, you know, I think it just hurts the series. Um, and it's a real shame. But that's like that's like a whole other discussion. Is the idea of streaming services and what they can do and how they kind of ruin shows by kind of kneecapping them like that. But, I mean, there's other shows they've done it with with great success, like um, the Sonic Prime show. The Sonic Prime show is one season that's been released in three parts. But that one's also Sonic. It's an all-ages show. It's guaranteed an audience, you know, especially off the back of the movie. Inside Job is a kind of new, untested property. And it's like, yeah, okay, I get why maybe you wanted to you know, hedge your bets and and sort of split it up and maybe not do too many episodes at once. But then at the same time, you the the constant release of content that you get on something like Netflix is like a deluge anyway. So stuff only really has like a week at the top at most before it kind of disappears. And it's like if you release Inside Job, but then like you know, within a couple of weeks, you've got the new season of Big Mouth, for example, or, you know, the the debut of the new series of Archer or the new series of Rick and Morty, then, of course, a brand new show is going to be overshadowed by that. And, you know, maybe that's an instance where Netflix can maybe take something from, like, the Disney Plus or, or um, Paramount Plus model, where it's a case of, okay, we'll drop you a new episode every week. And, you know, drop you a couple of episodes at once, get you hooked, and then we'll drop a new episode every week. Because the thing like that is that keeps people talking. That keeps people engaged. And 
you know, I think that's a that's a discussion for another time. Like, what is the best way of streaming shows doing things like this? But I think the way that Netflix has chosen to handle the release schedule here for Inside Job has just hurt the show. And, you know, I admit I'm part of the problem because I've only just got around to watching it, you know. But it also sucks because shows like this don't get that cult status anymore. You know, if I go back and watch Inside Job, you know, another two, three, four, five times myself and encourage, you know, and a load of other people do that as well, it's not the same as, like, how Family Guy came back from DVD sales or Futurama came back from DVD sales. It's not the same thing. And I think that hurts it as well because it's like you can't get a show generating a cult fan base and a, and a, a loyal fan base that then wants to see more of it that then makes the company take a chance. You know, this was this was a decent show with some clever writing written by you know, done by talented people with a talented cast. And it's got 18 episodes, which is admittedly more than some other shows get. But, you know, probably not even eight hours of content altogether. And it's just done. It's gone. It's a shame. So, how about a Christmas film? Um... Last year, last Christmas, saw the release of Violent Night. Now, Violent Night stars uh, David Harbour and John Leguizamo, um, who I think is a lot of fun in this, by the way. Um, I quite like John Leguizamo in a lot of things, and I think he's very funny here. Um, But yeah, it's... um, it, it drew some attention because it was produced. Um, well, one of its producers, I should say, is uh, David Leach, who obviously worked on the first uh, John Wick and Atomic Blonde. The movie itself, though, is actually written by uh, Pat Casey and Josh Miller. Uh, so Pat Casey worked on the uh, Sonic the Hedgehog feature films. Josh Miller. Uh, did as well. The two of them worked together as partners. Um, And it's directed by Tommy Wercola, who is a Norwegian film director, who I've not really heard of. Uh, He has a bit of a... Yeah, a bit of an empty Wikipedia page um, looking at it. But I'm, I'm... You know, this film I quite enjoyed, so I'm sure a lot of his other work is very good as well. Um, the film itself is, I think the closest allegory is like Die Hard, but the actual person saving the day is Santa. But when I say Santa, we're talking a very, very jaded Santa Claus. (laughs) And I've got to admit, I really like it. I... I like a lot of Christmas movies anyway, and I like the concept of Santa being real 
in in the world of these Christmas movies because it it gives them a real fantasy quality. Like there's something definitely that's fun and fantastical about the character of Santa Claus or Father Christmas or Saint Nick, whatever you want to call him. But movies generally go for Santa Claus. And, you know, there is a fantastical element about that. You know, whether it's something like Santa Claus the movie, whether it's something like Miracle on 34th Street, um, you know, whether it's something like Elf, there is a fantastical quality and and real charm to it. It's like something that C.S. Lewis said about fairy tales. You know, it's like you can enjoy fairy tales. There's something good about them. Um, that's what Santa stories are like. Santa stories are basically fairy tales. You know, it's this nice, happy story that we tell ourselves every Christmas that, you know, there is someone out there whose whole thing is just giving nice people something good for it, for the fact that they're good people, you know, and then also punishing the naughty people admittedly he punishes them by giving them coal you know it's not a huge punishment um but you know i think it's a nice idea it's, it's the idea of you know there's an idea of justice in it there's an idea of um magic in it you know the whole there's a lot of magic in the whole thing about santa claus you know how does he get around all the way around the world in one night you know how does he deliver a present to every kid etc 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 how do the reindeers fly you know it's all magic and you know because of that you have to believe in it but that's getting off topic and talking about santa i could talk about santa himself as a character in his own right uh, and i might do in the future um but for now it's like let me just say it's it's a good story it's a good idea to have santa claus this film (laughs) this film has santa claus as a very jaded older person basically Uh, he's you know there's been a sort of a revival in like christmas movies recently there was uh christmas chronicles on netflix for example was very very good um but this is very different david harbour is not as old as a lot of the other actors that i've seen play santa claus in the past um you know he's still relatively young um you know he's, he's not even 50 yet 48 um and so, yeah, it's it's interesting to see him in this role because, you know, he doesn't look old enough to play Santa. Like, maybe a mall Santa, but to play the actual Santa. But what David Harbour does have is that he is uh, an action star. You know, some of his roles, things like Red Guardian, um, things like Strange Things, uh, have really kind of highlighted that, no, yeah, he can be, he could potentially be an action star and a, a pretty decent one. And, you know, not only could he be an action star, he could be a very particular brand of action star. Because... You know, David Harbour, he's a big bloke. Like, not just tall, not just muscular, but big. Like, stocky big. 
And they play on that in this by making him a former Viking warrior who became Santa Claus. <laughs> you know? Um, which I think is a, a great idea. Now, uh, basically, the plot of the movie, um, there's this estranged family, um, one of whom is the heir of um, this quite illustrious uh, family, Um, and they've retired to their family's compound for Christmas. Um, So there's the the son, Jason, who's played by the same actor who played Translucent in The Boys, Um, his wife, Linda, and their daughter, Trudy, and they're going to their mother's, Gertrude's. Um, Trudy wishes through an old family talkie for uh, an old walkie-talkie, which they told her can talk to Santa because he forgot to take her to see Santa because of other things that were going on, um, that she wants her family to, like, get back together. So, you know, that's a nice core family dynamic and that's core to a lot of these christmas movies you know it's about family and there's usually a kid involved where this changes is that this uh you know big very rich family mansion has apparently got 300 million dollars in cash hidden in a vault in the basement and you know scrooge uh you know a codenamed mercenary Uh, has gathered a group who have infiltrated the house staff to basically rob the, you know, the Lightstones for Christmas and to steal away with all of this uh, $300 million. And it's a really good, it's a quite a good plan, I'm not going to lie. It's a very, um, again, kind of diehard thing, but in this this it's like, in diehard where um, Hans Gruber and the others kind of hide the fact that there's is a simple robbery by obfuscating it, by making it look like a terrorist act. This is very clearly like from the start, no, we're robbing you. <laughs> there are some twists and turns along the journey. Um, but, you know, it's like, no, this is a robbery. We're after your money. We know you have this money that you shouldn't have. We're going to steal it from you. So all of that, very, very good, right? However... <laughs> they happen to rob the house at the exact same time that Santa is dropping dropping off Trudy's present because Trudy is on his nice list, right? Trudy's on his nice list. We're getting like a really nice little montage before this of like, like I said, jaded Santa Claus doing the rounds on Christmas Eve, you know, seeing this, um, you know, this drunken father and stealing his whiskey, um, peeing off the side of the sleigh, um, seeing all the, you know, this Christmas tree surrounded by Amazon gift boxes and just throwing the present in because it's like, oh, I don't care, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like Amazon gift boxes that aren't even wrapped either. They're just like around the tree. Oh, it's it's bad. Um but yeah, no, Santa has to kind of defend himself against some of the mercenaries because obviously they run through the house. They're trying to kill him. He ends up having to defend himself and gets stuck because the reindeer have disappeared. But 
he's now involved. He's actually killed one of the mercenaries in self-defense. Um, and so he has to kind of team up with them. <laughs> uh, you know, he has, to, he has to kind of protect the family because he hears from Trudy um, over her walkie-talkie. You know, and she asks him to save them. You know, because he he he, he takes a radio from one of the mercenaries and Trudy's walkie-talkie manages to hit the right radio signal that he can hear her. So he's talking to Trudy in the same way that John McClane talks to um, Al in the car, you know, um, which lets him go up against these mercenaries. And what follows is just a ridiculously fun action movie. Um like really stupidly fun um there are some amazing like action kills in here like i think gore works really well in action movies because it's you know especially splatter because it's like the the humorous payoff for all the tension and it's used to great effect here like it really really works this is a funny movie um and i had a lot of fun with it a lot of the the physical comedy, the timing, it all really works. You know, a lot of the the fight choreography and everything, it's all works for me. I had a lot of fun with it. But saying that, there's some good writing in here as well. Not just for Santa, but for the Lightstone characters as well. Um, and for the mercenaries as well. Some of them are really quite fun. Um, and I think... If you're going to go for a a sort of Christmas action movie, like doing this sort of role, doing doing this sort of idea really works. And this is a Santa I would very happily see more of. Um, like there's obviously some origin story there, like how he went from being a Viking to this very jaded Santa Claus. You know, how he became Santa Claus in the first place isn't really explained. You know, we see him on a Viking battlefield with a hammer drenched in blood. Um, that's like the only real flashback we get. Um, but, you know, for a lot of the first part of the film, he's very clearly out of practice and out of shape and struggling to kind of defend himself. Like, it looks like it's causing him real effort, <laughs> you know? Um. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought the human character, uh, say human characters, the family, the ones that maybe you shouldn't really, you know, they could have been an afterthought. They're all quite good. There's a lot of comedy in this. Um, but yeah, the the two stars of this are very easily David Harbour and John Leguizamo. They are a lot of fun. And both of them are just clearly having a whale of a time uh, playing the roles that they're playing. So, you know, and then, but then far from the only ones, like this is a film that just looks like it was fun to make. Like you get, you know, you see some films and you think they had fun on this. Like this was a fun set. That's what this feels like. Everything about this just seems fun. And they are making the sequel. So I'm intrigued um, to see a sequel and see what that would do. 
with the idea. Um, so, yeah. I'm intrigued. So, yeah, Violent Night. Uh, if you want something different to watch over the Christmas holidays uh, and you want a, a good Christmas action, violent movie that isn't Die Hard, this is a pretty good palate cleanser. And now for something completely different, Cocaine Bear. Now, Cocaine Bear came out earlier this year. It was directed by Elizabeth Banks. Um, I don't think it was her film debut. I think she has directed other films. Yeah, she directed Pitch Perfect 2 um, before this. Um, as well as a couple of others, I think. But um, this is a lot of fun. <laughs> like, a lot of fun. Um, it's very bizarre. <laughs> um, it's one of those that's loosely inspired by a true story. When I say loosely inspired, that is with the biggest air quotes ever <laughs> because when i say loosely inspired what what we mean is the the actual story of the cocaine bear is that you know some cocaine was dropped by drug smugglers in the wilderness in tennessee from a plane um and a bear ate some and promptly overdosed and died <laughs> And so this uh, this bear is now preserved in a museum. <laughs> this movie decides to do something very, very different. Now, the plot is roughly the same. You know, we are talking about, um, you know, a whole load of drugs that have been um, dropped uh, by a drug smuggler. Um in a national forest um, in northern Georgia where a black bear has eaten some of the cocaine. The difference is in this, that bear has become very aggressive and is hunting more cocaine. Like, this bear is chasing that high because... <laughs> Um, there's a lot of drugs in this forest because obviously it was a, it was a plane, a drug smuggling plane coming up with like millions of dollars worth, like 1980s millions of dollars worth of cocaine. Um, and it's all been dropped in this park in Georgia. Um, you know, this national forest. And so this bear is hunting for more of it. And so anyone who seems to come into contact with the cocaine becomes a potential victim for the bear. And plot-wise, um, a mother goes looking for her daughter um, who skips school with her best friend in order to go into the forest. Um, a wildlife ranger and a 
uh, wild no wildlife activist and a park ranger end up um, trying to deal with delinquents and obviously do a wildlife survey and some uh, drug henchmen, I suppose, um, one of which is going through a, a very bad breakup. Um, and so, and is the son of like the gang boss. Um, so he's very depressed and is. Oh, oh, and a, a, a police detective who has been tra- tracking this drug ring for years. Um, when he finds the body of the smuggler in Tennessee, like all these people kind of descend on the national forest and get caught up in the chaos, <laughs> you know? So we've got, you know, we've got drug henchmen. We've got even the drug kingpin who's played by Ray Liotta comes in at some point. Um, you know, we've got pair of kids and the mother who's actively looking for them, the park ranger, um, you know, teenage delinquents, the cop, it's all there. And what just follows is a bear going crazy. (laughs) And it works really well because of how this bear is performed. Like there was someone actually playing this bear. Like Alan Henry, stunt performer and actor, was playing the role of the bear. He's credited as the bear performer. The bear is CGI, like completely CGI, obviously. What he did was use a custom-made uh, aluminium limb extensions so that he had the shape of the bear, which is similar to kind of the, the limb extensions that we used in the recent Planet of the Apes movies um, for the actors playing the apes. They had very similar sort of limb extensions to give them the the dimensions of the apes. Um, and so what happens here is, is he's just playing a bear, <laughs> you know, and hunting people or just being silly and, and, you know, because obviously this bear is on drugs, it's tripping balls. Um, and everyone is just at the mercy of this bear. Uh, there's other characters as well. There's hikers um, that are involved at some point. Um, in fact, the opening scene is with this, this pair of like uh, Scandinavian hikers. Um, so yeah, it's it works really well, and the cast is pretty good. Like I'm not gonna lie, Alden Ehrenreich, uh, Ehrenreich, uh, the one who played. He played Solo, didn't he? Um, in the Han Solo movies, he plays uh, Eddie, who is the 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 drug fixer who's been broken up with. Uh, Kerry Russell uh, plays Sari. She's the mother. Um, O'Shea Jackson is David. He's the other fixin fixer. He's the um, he's the oldest son of Ice Cube. He was also in uh, Godzilla King and the Monsters is where I first saw him and also straight out of Compton where he basically played his dad, I think. Um, and like I said, Ray Liotta, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is playing the um, the police officer. He's from The Wire. Um, so he's very good in this, playing a role that he's, he's quite good at. Um, the two kids as well, um, they're both a lot of fun. It's Brooklyn Prince. Um playing Dee Dee. I, I 
don't know her from anything else. She's she's kind of underutilized in this. Like she's a very promising character, but she gets sidelined for plot reasons. Um for a significant chunk of the runtime, which is a bit of a shame. Um, because the other child actor, Christian Convery, who was in Sweet Tooth, he's great. Like, he's a lot of fun, but it means that a lot of his stuff is him playing off of adults, and I quite enjoyed the screen chemistry between him and Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn Prince. So I think it would be nicer to get more scenes with the two of them. Uh, Margot Martindale is the park ranger. Um, she's... Again, brilliant, a very jaded character, um, you know, completely just like done with the whole park thing. Her whole thing is trying to stop the these delinquent kids um, and just get them out of her park. Um, Jesse Tyler Ferguson from Modern Family, he plays the, uh, the wildlife activist. Um, yeah, it's... It's a fun movie. Um, a really fun movie. Um, and yeah, I just had a lot of fun with it. There's some really good, um, kills almost, I suppose, from the bear. Um, (laughs) some really hilarious moments in this film. Um, like, yeah, there there were... Point. I'm glad I didn't see it in the cinema. I'll put it that way because there were there were parts I was laugh out loud, um, laughing out loud quite hard. Had to pause the movie to kind of catch my breath back, <laughs> you know, because there was some bits that were just it. It's just shocking in a great way. Like it's just so bizarre. I don't know what to expect. <laughs> um, but I don't know if what I expected was this. <laughs> it works really well. Um, yeah, it's just fun. Um, I also did think it was uh, quite funny. I'd seen a video a while back from... Um, well, actually, I saw, I saw it mentioned in a video, and I think I also saw it on Twitter, where someone was suggesting... I think it might have been Movie Bob again, where it was suggesting that Considering how much sort of woke outrage you get, it's quite surprising that there's no woke outrage against Cocaine Bear. Like, Cocaine Bear is the sort of people that those people who go, uh, you know, the sort of outrage merchants on the right wing who get annoyed at any kind of diversity. Um, They love this movie. But this movie completely subverts the original Cocaine Bear story to make the bear in this a female bear who's protecting her cubs to draw an analogue between that between the bear and the main character of Sari, who is um, looking for her children. Well, her child. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one. None of them picked up on that. Or if they did, they didn't care. Or does it not matter because it's a bear? <laughs> But yeah, I just thought that was quite telling. That, but yeah, I think I think it works. Um, and they kind of left it like you could make a sequel out of this. I don't think they will. Um, I think what's going to happen is a load of other. Co- well, I mean, 
not that I think it's going to happen. It already has happened. A whole line of like other cocaine-inspired animals. So you know, I know we're getting we're getting or we have had a cocaine shark. Someone's turned around a crackcoon. Um, so it's a raccoon on crack. Um, story really quickly. So yeah, that's bizarre, but. <laughs> But yeah, this film's fun. <laughs> like, ridiculously stupid fun. I had a lot of fun with it. Enjoy it. All right, there's one last thing I'm going to speak about on this little short review. Last year, um, while making a review for this podcast, I fell in love with a series called Final Space, um, a series created by Olan Rogers. I've got a whole episode on it. Absolutely love it. Um, that show is now in the process where it will probably end up being pulled from Netflix internationally quite soon. Um, it was cancelled under the uh, WB, um, you know, the Warner Brothers Discovery merger. It was it was kind of, um, you know, it was already on the cusp um, when Warner Brothers was bought out by AT&T. And then it unfortunately didn't survive the transition uh, under Discovery. So the third series had wrapped, but the the rest wasn't able to continue. Olan Rogers um, had spoken quite quite a lot about how much Final Space meant to him and how um, troubled some aspects of the production were. Like, um, you know, I mentioned in the previous episode, he said that Final Space series season three is probably the closest that he had to his vision of what the show was going to be. Um, Whereas season one and two seem to have a lot of kind of comedic moments that almost seem kind of mandated. And it's not to say that series three isn't funny, but, um, you know, there are jokes in it. But Final Space at its best is this amazing, epic series which really tackles some deep topics and some real proper human condition stuff, like dealing with life and death and philosophical concepts of the universe. And there's so much going on in it. And it's just, it resonated with me on such the, such a strong level. Um, And so obviously I'm a huge fan of it. Now, since then, uh, Olan Rogers has been given permission to finish it as a graphic novel, so I'm very, very much looking forward to that. I have already pre-ordered my copy of the graphic novel, um, and I am actively staying away from any spoilers. Like, he is releasing art for it and um, giving updates on the progress. I am avoiding all of it because I want to go into that thing completely blind. I don't want to be spoiled for anything. Um, and spoilers don't normally bother me, so that is really rare for me. Um, but also, before he got permission to to do that, Olan Rogers did run a Kickstarter, and that Kickstarter was to do a sci-fi pilot, which is called Godspeed. Godspeed is now out. It released two weeks ago, um, so very, very recently. Um, and it's on YouTube. It's completely free on Olan Rogers' YouTube channel. And it's only about 20 minutes long. 
but it is incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, between Final Space and this, like this is very much Final Space's spiritual successor, and being done completely without student, without any studio mandate. This is exactly what Olan Rogers wanted to make, and you can tell. And there is a really talented voice cast in this, like Troy Baker is one of the voices, um, Claudia Black is another, um, and it's this quite interesting setup for a potential series. And he has gone back to Kickstarter um, to try and get the money for a second season. You know, like a full series of Good Godspeed. I don't know how successful that has been. Um, I'm hoping we'll get. I think it's successful enough that we'll definitely get more content for Godspeed. But how much content we'll get, I don't know. It could just be a series of shorts. It might be a full, another full episode. Obviously, animation is expensive, and this is good animation as well. This is. Very stylized. Um, there's a lot of motion going on. You know, it's very rarely static. It looks incredible. And even within just this first 20 minutes, there are some real deep emotional moments. There's some dark moments. Um, but there's also some quite hopeful moments and some nice story moments and you know some good setup for what is this world the world within this show and like i said it, it feels like a spiritual successor to final space so there are some callbacks to final space some more overt some more discreet um which you will pick up on i think if you have watched that show um and you know i don't really want to spoil anything about it it's it's about a character called Iris who, you know, the setup is she's left on Earth while after a, an evacuation of the planet. That's it. That's all you're getting from me. Um, anything else, go and watch it. Literally, it's 20 minutes long and it's incredible. So I heartily recommend it. Like, it just snuck in at the end of the year as one of the, the best things I've seen recently. It's absolutely fantastic. I think it's really, really worth seeing. And yeah, it's it's really good. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed Good Godspeed. I keep wanting to call it Goodspeed because obviously the final space protagonist is Gary Goodspeed, um, which was a deliberate thing by. Um, by Alan Rogers, like he in the original announcement for the Godspeed Kickstarter, like he explained that was part of the reason why he chose the name. But yeah, Godspeed has some real interesting touches, and yeah, I got emotional while watching it. I was watching it with Tallulah earlier, and she got emotional as well. I've also sent the link to Zulu. Um, who's not currently with me at the minute, but I've like, watch this. This is amazing. Um, so I'm sure they'll probably also get emotional over it. Um, yeah, Final Space is just one that we all fell in love with and we're all really looking forward to the continuation. And now with Godspeed as well, 
there's something else from Olan Rogers that I'm very excited to look forward to should more of it get made. And at this point, Olan Rogers just has my attention. Like, I had issues with Final Space, but when it was good, it was really good. And Godspeed is really good. So if we get more stuff from him where he is in this creative role, I'm all for it. I really am. I want to see more of it. Because, yeah, I had a lot of fun with this. And like I said, for for a 20-minute episode, you know, you've just listened to me talking a podcast for however long. Go and watch this episode for 20 minutes. It's fantastic. So, yeah. Godspeed. One of my highlights of the year. So, that's it for these short mini-reviews. There's probably... There's plenty of other stuff I have missed. Some I will talk about in uh, big reviews. Some I'll talk about in small reviews. I'll probably do end up doing another one of these at the end of 2024. Um, because it's a good way of just catching like those few things that maybe I've got something to say about. But not enough for like a full video. Especially as some of my reviews have been getting longer recently. Because... It's kind of the only time I'm going to talk about that particular thing, or at least the only time I'm planning on talking about it in that much depth. So, for example, like Last of Us, that got a bit long, Gen V. Uh, actually, Gen V, I think, was one of my shorter ones. But, yeah, Last of Us, Willow, some of these others that I've got coming, you know, that have recently come out or are soon to be coming out. You know, they're kind of... <clears throat> I'm, I'm taking good omens as well. I'm taking the opportunity of like, this is the only time I'm going to speak about this thing for a while. So here's everything I want to say about it. Um, you know, whereas things like the films and TV shows that I've discussed here, this is all I have to say about them for now. Um, and I don't think I'll probably have much more to add in the future. So, <clears throat> you know, there's probably some other things that I could have fit in here had I had a chance to watch them in time, like the Meg 2, um, you know, I really enjoyed the first one, I was looking forward to the second one, uh, Nimona I've, on Netflix, I've heard great things about, I haven't had a chance to see it yet, so, you know, I'll probably end up doing one of these reviews again, let's be honest. So yeah, that's my uh, 2023 roundup, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. As usual, my friends, if you engage with this podcast in any way, it means the absolute world to me. Um, you know, you're free to support me on Patreon, or not Patreon, sorry, Ko-Fi. I do have a Patreon, but I don't actually have it active. I should probably fix that. Um, but yeah, so if you want to support me, I'd love that. If you want to commission me to make an episode or review something in particular that you're like, oh, Gardo hasn't gone around to this yet and I really want to know what they think about it, by all means, commission me. Uh, the commission fee is basically just so that I can um, purchase the item because um, for a lot of cases it, it might not be on a streaming service that I've got already, especially for some older things. So, you know, you can do that. In the meantime, I want you all to 
look after yourselves the best you can. Your physical and mental health is very important. Take the utmost care of yourselves. And until next time, you will look after yourselves the very best you can. Until next time, my friends. Thank you, my friends, for once again joining me on Gardo Goes Geek. Your continued support for this podcast means the absolute world to me, and I am grateful for every single one of you who stays and listens to one of my episodes. It means the absolute world. Now, if you would like to engage more with me or the podcast, we have a Discord community, small but growing, and... And we now have commissions open on Ko-Fi. So if there's a topic you would like to see me cover, you can pay me to cover it. All funds will be used for legal purchase of the relevant items where I do not have them. Have a look on the link tree for more information. Until next time, look after yourselves. Music.